Hey God, would you do a work now as we open your word that we be, uh, we'd be humble enough to receive what you want to tell us, humble enough to respond in obedience when you call us to move and apply what we learned this morning. Thank you for your word that is living and active, and it's able to, to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and make us more like Christ. Would you do that work this morning for our joy and for your, your great name's sake? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You can grab your Bibles, and we're going to be in First Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be finishing up First Peter over the, the next few weeks. Hope it's been an enjoyable journey for you. And before we jump in, I do want to just kind of pause, kind of pastorally for a moment. Yeah, obviously, there was something really significant that happened this week in the Supreme Court in overturning Roe versus Wade, and, and we, we should celebrate the preservation of life. Amen. Like, we should rejoice. There's been a lot of answered prayer, uh, a lot of prayers devoted to seeing that court case overturned and the preservation of life. And so we should rejoice in that. But I also just want to pastorally say this, a couple of things as well, is that it should also simultaneously uh, make us really urgent in the way in which we care for women and the way we care for life at all stages. It's one of the accusations against the Christian community is that we're very pro-life as it relates to being anti-abortion, but maybe slower to love women along the spectrum of their experiences. Statistically, I can even say this with confidence, in this room, it's not even likely. It's statistically the reality that there's multiple people in this room that have been directly or indirectly involved in abortion. And the grace of God meets us still there right? Still picks us up, allows us to walk in obedience and, and to find healing. And if, if the people in this world, even around us in our neighborhood, can't find healing with the people of God in the face of Jesus Christ and us be the ones who usher them into that, then there's something wrong with our posture toward culture in general. So may we be really urgent as well, just in our care for women, for children, and even just pick up the call to care for the the orphans in this world and foster care and an adoption. And so uh, there's very much things that run in tandem with the choice to abort or not abort. And so as a family of God, I pray that we'd be really urgent and caring for the people around us in those ways. Amen. All right. Thanks for giving me the liberty to speak to that just for a second. So we're going to be in First Peter chapter 5, and time is working against me here. So I'm going to have to kind of truncate a little bit of what I've planned to share. But let me ask you a question. How many of you consider yourself a humble person? Okay. It's a win-win question for me. Because if you raise your hand, you just kind of prove my point. If you don't raise your hand, then you have an awareness that we're all prideful people. And so the call to humble yourself, which is present in this section, I would say in a threefold way, hits home for every single person in this room because we are prone to pride. We're prone to self-rule and self-reliance and rebellion against God. We see that in the beginning of the Bible and the initial problem with Adam and Eve. But the call in this text is to humble yourself, and we're going to see kind of three layers to that. But let's go ahead and start by reading the text, chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 is where we'll be this morning. Let's read this together. This is God's word for us. It says this, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So in chapter 2 and 3, you might remember we took a, a threefold look at submission, this idea of being subject. And so we saw it in the context of being subject to the government and then in employment relationships to a boss, whether it be a good boss or an ungodly boss. And then we see it in the context of marriage. We see the same word used here for being subject to elders. And there's, it's probably debatable. There might be a dual purpose here as to whether or not this is just young people to older people in general, or if it's people to elders as in the office of pastor and elder. But what we did see, and maybe Peter's addressing some of this temptation, is that just as he's got done addressing, and, and Pastor Bill opened the word with y'all a few weeks ago, preaching this section about the way in which elders or pastors are called to serve, not as heavy-handed leaders, but those who are called to be examples to those that are in their care. So there's a humble example of leadership that should be present in the man of God filled with the spirit of God called to lead the people of God. And so maybe there's a temptation in light of that type of leadership for particularly younger people to not want to submit to softer, more gentle leadership. Maybe to somehow be subversive in the way in which they relate to elders or leadership in the church. And so he's going straight to that challenge. And he says, be subject to the elders. You who are younger, particularly, be subject to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This seems really self-serving as a pastor to preach that text, but the reality is it's present in our text this morning, is that as those who are younger submitting to leaders and those who are older than us, there's a way in which that is a reflection of the, the Christian life. Knowing how to submit our lives to authority is, is a very significant part of growing in godliness. And so in the pastoral office, Peter says, like, basically, no one wants a joyless, like, groaning pastor. Like, you don't want, to get, you don't want me to get up here and be like Eeyore. Has anybody ever seen Eeyore lead anybody in Winnie the Pooh? No. He just complained all the time. He's got a deep voice. He just complains. He just groans. his lifelong. But nobody wants a pastor like that. And there's a whole lot of reasons that pastors can groan and be joyless, uh, not the least of which is their own sin and challenge. But don't be the reason, because of your own defiance of leadership, that they are joyless and groaning. It's kind of the encouragement to those who are younger. Don't let your resistance be the source of that groaning. That's not going to gain you anything. What, like, what use will that pastor be to you is the point that Peter is making. And the willingness to submit to authority is a sign of Christian maturity. So humility is expressed, and we see this in this text, both vertically and horizontally. Vertically in our relationship to God, and then horizontally in our relationship to other people. And we see this in this text. We'll have to address both of them, and we're going to start with horizontally the way it's expressed. And I'm going to move quickly through these components. I want to make sure I give enough time for the last one. But the first point is this, humble yourself toward one another. So there's a humble yourself toward leadership, then humble yourself toward one, one another. Christians are to be clothed with humility toward one another. And the picture is this, pride is part of the old you. Humility is part of the new you in Christ. Clothe yourselves with humility. Colossians 3.12 
basically says this, in light of the fact that you put off the old man and you're putting on the new, the new self, which is fashioned in the image of your creator, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So how many of you have ever had a dress code at school or maybe at work, university? How many of you had that? Okay. So you know the experience. I don't know. I won't ask you if you ever got dress coded and sent home. But you know, when there's a dress code, if it's upheld and someone comes into contact with you and you violated the dress code, what happens? There's some break of an objective standard. You either have to go home or you have to change clothes. They're not going to be supportive of those clothes because they're not consistent with the dress code. And that's a little bit like this picture. So when we clothe ourselves with pride, there's immediate resistance from the hand of God. He's like, you know, I'm not supportive of that clothing. It's not part of the Christian dress code. It's not fitting for the, for the new man. And so that's why God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is not, this is not you. This is not me in you. Therefore, I'm not going to be supportive of you walking in pride. And if you've been around me for any number of years, like this has probably been the theme for me because of my temptation to pride from really early on as a believer. It's been a theme that's just kind of been the undercurrent of my life. The first Christian book I read was Humility by Andrew Murray, and it changed my world. It changed the way I view myself and I view God. And this, this notion, this truth that God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble is just monumental in its effect. Not just within the church, but in your job, in your closest relationships, certainly in your relationship with God. To know that God just isn't generally opposed to pride. He's opposed, he's opposed to the proud person. The individual, the man or woman walking in pride is going to be a violation of the clothing of humility that is part of the Christian life. So God is opposed to the proud, but he graciously empowers the humble. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Depending on the translation you look at in that verse, it could be something like this. God mocks the mockers. He scoffs at the scoffers. He scorns the scorners. God is opposed to the proud. And it's this vertical reaction or response from God to us that Peter uses to motivate us in this horizontal relationship. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before one another. So maybe think about it in the context of your close relationships. At work, at home, with your roommates, with your spouse. Have you ever found there to be God's blessing when you dig your heels in in pride? You just assume that you're right. You, you don't listen. You don't care for by trying to gain understanding, but you just got to dig your heels in in pride. Have you ever found blessing there? My guess is not. Not a lasting blessing. Why? Because God's opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Have you ever found pride to be something that builds trust in relationships? Absolutely not. But you know what does happen? And you've seen this. You see someone who's just prideful, like interested in selfish gain, selfish pursuit for their own benefit. Like, do you trust that person? No. But you know what humility does? It breeds trust and security in the context of relationships. That's true in the family of God. It's true in secular work environments. I saw this at State Farm as a manager, among managers, and where pride was present, there was an automatic distrust. 
And where you fought for humility, you know what happens? There's, even, there's a common grace of God, even in a secular environment, that creates an environment of trust and fruitfulness and blessing. And I think it's because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, like, does it mean that because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble, does that mean every humble person gets the promotion? No, it doesn't. That every decision goes your way because you're seeking to walk in humility? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. But there's a way in which the greatest source of blessing, the greatest source of esteem, namely from God, is what we receive when we walk in humility. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, says it this way. I think we'll have this up here. He says, The highest glory of man is in being only a vessel to receive and show forth the glory of God. We can do this only as we are willing to be nothing in ourselves that God may be all. I love this statement. Water always fills the lowest places first. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller the inflow of the divine glory or divine grace will be. Just picture that. So when you operate in pride in your closest relationships, maybe that's the most relevant encouragement I could give you. Like in your life, in those relationships that matter the most, when you position yourself in a place of pride, just imagine the flow of grace being cut off. Who wants that? Who wants the active opposition of the God of the universe? The same picture exists that if you walk in humility, just imagine those gates open up and freely flowing is the grace of God to strengthen, empower, encourage, to stabilize you and in your relationships. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And one of the sweetest things we have in Philippians chapter 2, I don't have time to unpack it, is we have humility personified in Jesus. The one who had all the rights. Yeah, we, we get our ourselves tied up in knots because of perceived rights. Jesus had all the rights. But although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be asserted or held on to. But he emptied himself, being made in the likeness of man. He became a, a bondservant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have humility personified in Jesus and just real briefly, I would say what we see in Philippians 2 as well is that humility um, applied in our relationships means that we, we look at one another as more important than ourselves. And we look at others' interests before our own. That's what you see in that section. Importance and interests. It's not about me. It's about you. Poet Edith, Edith Stilwell said it this way, kind of describing the human Dilemma. She says, I've often wished I had time to cultivate modesty or humility, but I'm way too busy thinking about myself. <laughs> and you laugh because you know that reality, right? Like, it's just really hard to think about other people. Like, we just, we would prefer to think about ourselves, and we naturally think about ourselves. But the Christian paradigm, the way we view the world through Christ, given his example and his spirit within us, is we say, not me first, but you first. And we say, may I not increase, but may God increase, right? That's the pattern and the steps of humility. So humble yourself before leadership, humble yourself before one another. And then the last one is humble yourself under the hand of God. There's so much that could be said here. And I have a lot to say in my notes. Let's trust the Lord. Show me how to do it. Since God is opposed to the proud and actively giving grace to the humble, humble yourself under the strong and sovereign hand of God. So the mighty hand of God, 
echoes Old Testament language describing the powerful and strong hand of God on behalf of his people. So several times in the book of Deuteronomy, the mighty hand of God is spoken of. A couple examples, Deuteronomy 6.21, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. 7.8, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So just real quick, a quick deep dive if those aren't antithetical to one another. Sovereign means God possesses and exercises supreme authority over all things at all times. Nothing can sway him or move him from his intended purposes. That he reigns and rules over everything in every season. He is the undisputed head of all. He operates with complete freedom and does not need permission or assistance to accomplish his will. He has complete and unmitigated control over everything. It's God's sovereignty. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules overall. So the picture is this. Humble yourself under the mighty, the, the strong and sovereign hand of God. We humbly bow our hearts and our knees under the purposes and the will of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who sovereignly, whose sovereignty knows no bounds. And so we say yes and amen. Like we can enter into like theologically, we say, okay, I believe that. But then we can, we're confronted with difficulty. And that's the framework of this book. But this command, these truths are being given to people facing difficulty. So when they survey the landscape of everything being allowed by the hand of God, there's difficulty in this command. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the sovereign rule and reign of God that's allowing the very difficulty that you're experiencing. And that's hard. Because our hearts want to say just, well, wait a second. That means he's in charge of everything. So what about when we disagree with or dislike what he's allowing into our lives? What about when we encounter difficulty? Do we meet difficulties with the same humility that we, that we meet delights with? The same surrender to God? In the face of those trials as we, as we maybe exhibit in times where things are going well. And I would submit all of us, there's a, there's a real substantial challenge to our own hearts to say, am I humble before the hand of God even when times don't look the way that I would desire for them to look? Do I trumpet the goodness and perfection of the sovereign will of God in my trials and in my inconveniences and in my stresses when I'm about when I'm thrown about by various concerns and cares. And God inspired Peter to write these words to suffering Christians who were experiencing some of the dark clouds of God's sovereignty. But the call is to bring ourselves under his hand, under his mighty strength, under his sovereign rule. And I heard this from a friend of mine years ago, and I've never forgotten it. This is a really, it's a dangerous thing to say, but it's dangerously biblical. Dangerous because it runs so counter to our nature. And it's essentially this. There will be nothing in your life that ever comes into your life that hasn't been filtered through the sovereign and good hand of God. Because to say that something is outside of his control means that in that moment, God isn't in control. He's not sovereign. That doesn't mean that that reality, that truth, that ob objective step of faith to believe that isn't difficult. We'll come back to that in a moment. But whatever joy or trial the hand of God has wrought in our lives, we have to humble ourselves under his faithful, mighty, and sovereign hand. I would say it this way. I've said it this way before. The sovereign control of, you take dictators and rulers in this world. Sovereignty when it comes to a, 
a man or certainly a wicked ruler is just an absolute nightmare for the people underneath that ruler. But the sovereignty of a good, gracious, just, righteous, faithful king is the security for his subjects. Please don't miss that. And the difficulty of embracing the sovereignty of God, those dark clouds of his sovereignty, we can't minimize the fact that God is in control. And we're called to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And when sea billows roll, when dark clouds loom, when your tears seem to be your food all day long, this next part is so sweet for us. Selves under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your concerns. Don't carry them. Every single one of us in this room has concerns. I'm certain that there's something in your life that is stressing you right now that you brought into this room. It could be job-related, finances. It could be family-related. It could be physical affliction, just general stress in life. I want you to think about those things, maybe that one thing that's, that's troubling you, that's keeping you up at night, the thing that makes it hard to sleep, the thing that causes you the greatest anxiety in personal relationships. I want you to identify maybe just briefly what that thing is. And the question is, are you carrying that or are you casting it? That's the proposition here. God says, cast all your anxieties upon me because I care for you. Cast your concerns, don't carry them. And it seems the implication is that pride carries anxieties, but humility casts them. Have you ever thought of it that way? This section demonstrates that an application of humility is that we don't carry our stresses on our own shoulders. That we don't choose to carry our own anxieties, but instead we turn to God and we throw them upon him, heap them upon him, motivated by the fact that he cares for us. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So this word for casting is a demonstration of both urgency and velocity. So there's this like, I must get rid of these. Like this urgent, heartfelt cry of like, I've got to take these to God. And you just hurl them at his feet. It's the same word that was used when Judas threw back the silver coins that he was given when he betrayed Jesus. You just throw them at the feet of God because he cares for you. And all, the Greek word for all is a really complicated word because you know what it means? All, everything. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Not just what you deem to be the most significant. Every single shade of concern and stress in your life. God says, I want you to bring it all to me. Why? Because I care for you. And if you don't cast them, you will carry them. Those are your two options. And when you carry them, there's all sorts of damage that it does to our own hearts. To the life lived in this space we call life on this side of heaven. There's all sorts of damage that it causes. Everything big and small, every source of anxiety, all that concerns you, everything you care about, every measure of distraction, all the difficulties you possess, cast it all upon him. All your anxieties, all the time, all upon him, every single bit. It's all inclusive. And God wants to hear from his children. 
It doesn't just invite us. This isn't just a truth to say, yeah, I believe that I can cast my anxieties upon God. This isn't just some propositional thing we agree with. The question is, are we doing it? It's a command. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. This is an issue of obedience, ultimately, that demonstrates humility versus pride. And there are some mighty, strong, able rulers whose subjects fear to tread in their presence. Think of that even in this world today. Afraid of rejection, afraid that their cares are too little to bring to such a lofty place, afraid they'll be condemned, afraid to take up their king's time with their affairs. It would be unthinkable to bring a word of complaint or lament lament to the presence of a king. But not so with our king. He's not only supremely strong, he deeply cares and has a deep compassion for his children. So go to him. Cast what weighs on you upon him. He'll never turn you away. As a faithful friend to whom you can go with the utmost confidence and transparency, go to him. As a caring father, he not only loves to hear you call out to him, but he's strong enough to carry what you give him. That's a good combination, isn't it? Not only cares enough to invite everything that you have, but he's got all the resources that you don't possess to do something with it, to carry it for you, to make you fruitful in the midst of it. The question is, are you going to him? Are you casting your cares upon him quickly, consistently, and constantly? Psalm 46, a fairly famous psalm, of it at least, is a passage that we know. In Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, here's the picture. It says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And here's some description of the circumstance. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling, that's some significant difficulty. And it goes on to say in verse 10, in the midst of all this challenge, the call for the heart of the believers, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In a way that confronts us, carrying our own anxiety is a form of pride. In a way that confronts us, casting all our anxieties upon him is a form of humility, being still. And I want to share just some practical things in this space for a minute. I'll try to do this in a way that's clear and helpful. The first thing I would say is that casting your anxieties upon God doesn't mean that you have to pretend that there's something that they're not. It doesn't mean suppressing the magnitude of the pain. I want that just to kind of sit there for a second. What this doesn't mean is that somehow you throw it off and it means that you don't somehow have have to grieve or lament real pain. It's one of the sweetest things about God's word is it's so human. You look at the book of Psalms, the book of Lamentations, it's like a song written for the lamenting heart. It has this paradox of like, here's everything I'm going through and I feel like you're absent, but the steadfast of love of God endures forever. So my encouragement is this, when you go to God, be honest. He knows anyways. 
But be honest about the level of pain that you're feeling, the questions in your heart, the doubt that you experience. And even the complaint, if I might be so bold to use that word, because complaint is present in the word of God with the people of God to God in the relationship with him. And maybe a biblical term to ascribe to that is lament. Casting doesn't mean pretending. Casting doesn't mean suppressing. Casting will often include real grieving. Let me just read this portion of Lamentations briefly. Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. Just, just hear this. And just, for some of you, this may be a, an immense encouragement because the, the Bible often gives us language for our pain that we don't possess in and of ourselves. Just listen to this. And the title in many Bibles of this section is Great is Your Faithfulness. But listen to what happens next. Chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. That's deep darkness. In the same song, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How is it possible? How is it possible to know the reality of those deep, dark clouds of God's sovereignty, but yet say, great is thy faithfulness? Because we have a God that isn't indifferent to our pain. That we serve a Savior who's acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows inflicted with our pain and our guilt and our shame. He knows very well the path traveled with lament and grief and sorrow, physical, emotional, relational pain. And so even in our confusion, even in our brokenness and our pain to say, God, why are you allowing these things? There's a way in which he meets us even in that. We were given a book when we went to the pastor's conference a couple weeks ago. I would encourage you all to pick this up. I've only read a part of it at this point but it's called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. And it's a book given to building out a biblical perspective of what's called lament. And I, I love the way the author calls it. I'll just say this briefly. He talks about lament being the space in between pain and promise, where your pain seems to overshadow or, or hide the promises of God. Lament is the space in between where you give voice to the confusion and the pain and the darkness you're experiencing and allow God to meet you right there in that place, in that honesty. And allow God's word to give voice to your pain. Read the book of Psalms. Read the book of Lamentations. Read the book of Job. But be honest as you cast your anxieties upon God. And be hopeful. And be hopeful. Be expectant that God will meet you there. And I'll close off with this. Um, it's likely in a room this size, there's, there's someone in this room that you've never truly surrendered to Jesus. And maybe this message seems kind of disjointed from the invitation to believe in Jesus. But really what it is, like when you surrender to Jesus for the first time, that's the first step of humility. It's the first step where you realize you don't have what it takes to earn your way into the family of God. 
Will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by receiving the fact that he did for you what you could never do for yourself? And so my challenge, my charge, my plea to you this morning is if you've never trusted in Christ, humble yourself today under the mighty hand of God and you will find that one day you will be exalted by that same hand, lifted up unto salvation. You'll be considered completely blameless and right in his sight by no work of your own. And church family, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, who are part of our family of faith, then my encouragement is to explore in the scriptures this reality of casting your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. Be honest about your difficulty. God isn't afraid of your questions. He's not even afraid of your complaint. As long as that turn to him is done with humility, to consider his promises, give voice to your brokenness and your doubt and your pain and find God ready and able to meet you right there in that place. Amen? Let's pray together. Got to feel um, assured that there are many in this room uh, going through various forms of dark times and clouds And I pray that you give them the grace and the strength to be able to trust you. Uh, That you would sink your promises uh, down deep in their heart. God, I pray that you'd help us all grow uh, in the process of casting our anxieties upon you because you care for us. I pray that your love for us is more real to us day by day. Thank you for the fact that you're not a God who's just merely sovereign and in control, but you're a God who is both strong and deeply compassionate and caring toward his children. Thank you that you not only invite, but you command us to draw near to find everything we need in your presence. And I praise your people that we would cease striving and know that you are God, that we'd find stillness in the fact that you have dealt so bountifully with us. God, you've been so good to us. Every single day we have above the grave is a work of the grace of God. And so we bless you, we magnify your name, Um, we give you even just a a simple final offering of our praises to you in response to all that you have done. Thank you for your word, and I pray that we would hide your word deep in our hearts, that it might cause us to be men and women who follow you more, more wholeheartedly. Thank you, Jesus, for your great humility, that you're willing to come down off the throne and be subjected to torment and execution, abandonment from those that you love, being falsely accused so that we could be free. So we bless you. And um, as we sing this final song, I think of the title of this song, Free, Amen, um, that we are thankful that we're free, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. And so in the midst of our entanglement with this world, our battle with our own sin, we thank you that because of Christ and his spirit within us, that we have the hope of newness of life. And so would you help us to walk as those alive from the dead. Help us to walk as those who have hope beyond this life. And help us to walk in light of your promises this day and every day we've been given. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing to close off.